This is CNN Breaking News. Hello and welcome to First Move. We're following three major stories for you this hour in the Bahamas. Catastrophic damage left in the wake of Hurricane Dorian. In the UK, a general election inching ever closer after Prime Minister Boris Johnson suffers a huge defeat on Tuesday. And in Hong Kong, the government withdrawing the controversial extradition bill that sparked 13 straight weekends of protest. But first, as the sun rises over the Bahamas for the first time in days, the sheer scale of the devastation caused by Hurricane Dorian is beginning to dawn. Let me show you now aerial views of the Abaco Islands. This was one of the areas that was hit the hardest. Seven people have been confirmed dead, but officials say that number is likely to rise. The Prime Minister told CNN the country has been attacked by a, quote, vicious, devastating storm. Paula Newton is in the Bahamas for us and uh, ready to chat to us. Paula, just describe what you've seen so far since you've arrived. Poor Nassau right now, and we're at a staging area where people are trying to desperately get to those people in need. I mean, look at the aerial pictures that we've been showing you on CNN at Abaco. Those are the islands, Julia, that took the full force of a Category 5, one of the strongest storms ever to be seen on Earth. And, Julia, these families are desperate. We are now on day four without having any contact. I'm here with family members who have text messages on their phone from loved ones from Sunday that read, only alive now. They do not know if anybody is uh, left, if anyone is left in terms of their family members, what is left of their homes. They've seen the pictures of devastation as well, and they are desperate to get there. You can imagine as well the big aid effort ongoing. We are here with U.S. Coast Guard and Bahamian military, all trying to get to those Abaco Islands to see what is needed. And after having gone through this devastating storm, Julia, the hard work is yet to come. There are reports of at least dozens, perhaps hundreds, injured, um, critically ill, uh, and of course, the issue of food and water as well. It's hard to get an estimate of exactly how many people were in the Abaco Islands at the time, perhaps as many as 25,000. I can tell you anecdotally, just from the messages that people have on their phones, that there are at least hundreds, but more likely thousands of people who are in desperate need of the basics right now uh, with help still. As you said, it's the first day that the sun has come up. It's, it's certainly given everyone some hope that they can finally get in there and get some help. Yeah, I mean, I've been looking at some of the things that the Red Cross has been saying here. I mean, their estimate right now is 99% of people in Grand Bahama or the Abaco Islands are going to need some form of emergency assistance. I mean, Paula, just given the images that we're looking at right now, even getting emergency assistance to some of these people is a huge challenge right now. And that is the issue. We are here uh, with deployments. And as I said, it's the first break that they've had in the weather without those strong winds. And we are seeing people with medical kits, with desalination kits, trying to get in as much water as possible. But the task at hand is massive, Julia, in terms of trying to deploy to these islands when literally almost every piece of infrastructure that they have had on the islands, from electricity to communication to roads, basic communities. I've been talking to people that have communities at least with three and 400 people that, have, that are just basically waterlogged. There is nothing left. It is like they have become a part of the sea. 
And that is the issue here. The most depressing uh, scenes are, are from family members who literally are begging people here at this aviation centre to fly by their homes, to give them the coordinates of their homes, hoping that even if they can't land, that they will see a flag, that they will see a person on the roof, that they will be able to have proof of life. And that's what they're moving on here from, Julia. They want that proof of life, and once they do, they're doing everything that they can to deploy the resources on the ground. A monumental task at this point. Yeah, a monumental task. I mean, we've heard from the authorities as well, and, and the Prime Minister too, and he's hinted at the suggestion that while so far the loss of life is just a handful at this stage. The fear is that it's far greater. Again, it's just a, a case of being able to gauge numbers and, and get a sense, given the lack of ability to communicate with people and understand who's even missing at this stage. Absolutely, Julia. I mean, the families I'm talking to, you know, the last messages they had from their families was moving to the only, uh, you know, piece of roof we have left under those conditions. As the Prime Minister basically prepared everyone the numbers will get much worse. And that is what everyone fears. Um, most people do not even want to utter uh, the amount of people that they believe may have perished in this storm. They are obviously hoping that their worst fears uh, will not come to fruition, Julia. But right now, as the sun comes up here and they understand that there is that break in the weather, uh, they are trying to get in there to see exactly what they are dealing with. And I can't stress enough uh, the fact that there is just nothing left. You have people on specs of property, uh, just clinging to any patch of dry land that they have. They are clearing any kind of fields of, of debris, trying to get areas ad hoc, ad hoc, Julia, where helicopters are able to land in some of these caves and some of these remote islands as well. Um, it, it is going to be quite a, a few months, at least around here, before they are able to deploy all these islands. Need. And again, not an insignificant amount of people. It's hard to get estimates. They have so many seasonal residents in the Abaco Islands, but, you know, perhaps as many as 25,000 people, maybe more, they really don't know that will be in need of the most basic things over the next few days and weeks. Yeah, a monumentous task. We're going to be talking to the Red Cross later on in the show. But for now, Paula Newton, thank you so much for joining us there from the Bahamas and just giving us a sense of of how bad the situation is. Now, Patrick Ottman has been reporting from the island of Grand Bahama since the hurricane arrived there. He found local people frantically doing all they could to help their neighbours, despite the deadly conditions, as you saw. Listen in. One jet ski ride, one boat trip at a time, these Bahamians are saving the lives of their family, neighbours and complete strangers. They launch from a bridge that is now underwater. Theirs is a dangerous mission. Hurricane force winds are still raging here. Howard Armstrong was rescued after his house flooded to the ceiling. His house was one of hundreds lost as storm surge from Dorian swallowed whole neighborhoods. Armstrong's wife, Lynn, didn't make it. It came over the roof. I would imagine 21 feet at least. Uh, we were doing all right until the water kept coming up and all the appliances were going around the house like a washing machine. That's probably I got hit with something in there. And my poor little wife got hyperfermia and she was standing on top of the kitchen uh, cabinets until they disintegrated. And then I, 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 I kept with her and, and she just drowned on me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know. There's no power on Grand Bahama Island, no running water, 
Sporadic cell service, at best. Submerged cars block many roads. Maybe the last thing working here is this all-volunteer crew of boaters risking their lives to save lives. Dorian fights them every trip they make. People are coming, they're bringing their jet skis, they're bringing their boats, uh, they're going to get their neighbors, they say. Everyone says they know of people. They say it's very hard to navigate because there are, of course, no more streets. Uh, and yet they are doing it. You don't see anybody from the government here. Uh, it is all very ad hoc. People coming with what they have, the jet skis they have, they are dealing with horrible weather conditions. It's not safe to be out on a boat right now. It's not safe to be out here at all. And yet they say they know there are people out there. There are people who've lost their lives out there, we are told. They brought back at least one body. Uh, and they say they will not stop until they get everybody. They have hours, if not days, of work ahead of them. While we're there, winds flip a jet ski, and the rescuers have to halt their efforts. Rescuer Rochanel Daniel says there isn't much time left. They was exhausted. Some we had to carry. Some couldn't even make it. Some we put on, on a jet ski. We turned the whole jet ski over because they, they couldn't hold their weight up. First first thing we found was my brother. He was clinging onto a tree, and he, he made us safe, but um, we, wasn't, we, we were unable to locate his wife at the moment. We hope that she's okay, but uh, the rescue goes on and on. We had a lot of people supporting us. Everybody working as a team right here, you know? It's very hard, but you know what I'm saying? But we shall overcome. How are you doing? You made it. Yeah. You're safe. Yeah. Dozens have been rescued, but many more remain in total desperation as they spend their third night waiting for salvation. Patrick Ottman, CNN, Freeport, Bahamas. A heartbreaking report there from Patrick Ottman showing this sheer devastation right now in the Bahamas. Well, the hurricane is now moving north off the Florida coast, but high winds and heavy rain are already being felt onshore as it pushes north. There are now fears it could make landfall in North or South Carolina. If you'd like to help the victims of Hurricane Dorian, you can head to our website. You can find a list of vetted charities there and ways to contribute. That's at cnn.com slash impact. So our website there, and we'll bring you further updates on Dorian as soon as we get them. All right, let's move on now to Britain. The Prime Minister has threatened to call for a general election on October the 15th. This after lawmakers seized control of parliamentary proceedings in a stunning defeat for Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The eyes to the right, 328. The nose to the left, 301. Not a good start, Boris. <laughs> that vote on Tuesday paved the way for a bill to make a no-deal Brexit illegal. 21 Conservatives sided with the opposition and were promptly kicked out of the Conservative Party. In Parliament a short time ago, the Prime Minister called it a, quote, surrender bill, saying it would undermine his talks with the EU. The only thing that standing, is standing in our, in our way is the undermining of those negotiations by this surrender bill, which would lead to more dither and delay. We delayed in March, we delayed in April, and now we want to de he wants to delay again for absolutely no purpose, whatever. Mr Speaker, I really fail to see how I can be accused of undermining negotiations, because no negotiations are taking place. 
Bianca Nabilo joins me from Westminster. Bianca, actually words fail me here. At one point, the Prime Minister saying he wanted an election, calling Jeremy Corbyn a chlorinated chicken for not agreeing to it. What do we make of this and, and what next? Well, Julia, words are almost failing me too, so this could be quite a quiet segment, but I, I concur. That was a remarkable Prime Minister's questions, Boris Johnson's first ever. So this is off the back of his first ever vote where he had this crushing defeat, not aided in large part by the fact that he had many rebels from within his own party, which he then summarily ejected. So 21 members of the Conservative Party were expelled, including Winston Churchill, one of Boris Johnson's idols, including his grandson, Nicholas Soames. And then today he faced the House of Commons and Jeremy Corbyn for the first time in his first PMQs. And we didn't see a lot of information shared between the two leaders, but Boris Johnson did keep hammering home the point that he sees what the opposition parties are doing as a surrender bill, one which cedes all of the power to the European Union. He criticised them for undermining his negotiating position with the EU, but the opposition maintained that there is no credible evidence that Boris Johnson and his government are engaging with the EU in meaningful negotiations at the moment. They believe that they're trying to go for a no-deal situation. As for the coronated chicken remark, that of course alludes to the fact that those who are concerned about Britain opening up in free trade deals with the United States might lower their food standards and the fact that this is all a game of chicken. Um, to, to put it mildly, Jeremy Corbyn, who had been calling for an election for no less than three years, is now equivocating on whether or not he'd actually vote for one. He says that reason being that he wouldn't want to vote for an election if he couldn't ensure that a no-deal scenario would be prevented. So we're going to see uh, a tussle between those things today, Julia, in Parliament, between the opposition parties or the rebel alliance, as they sometimes refer to themselves, trying to ensure that a no-deal is prevented at all costs, and then Boris Johnson trying to ensure that there is an election by the 15th of October. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an ongoing debacle, quite frankly, but Boris Johnson called it a surrender bill. This idea that he gives up any negotiating power to the EU as a result of ruling out a, a no-deal exit. And the Brexiteers will argue that's certainly the case here. But what are we looking at going forward if that is indeed the case? Because the polls suggest, if we believe them, that currently Boris Johnson has no working majority in Parliament, but he could get one following an election. What then? That's, well, that's why the election is the least worst option for Boris Johnson, even though he said just days ago on the steps of Downing Street, he didn't want an election. He said, you don't want an election, referring to that the country at large. He repeated that today in the House of Commons chamber. But in actual fact, now that he has a majority of zero, and even when, Julia, he had a majority of one before he had a defection on the floor of the House of Commons yesterday, he still didn't have the numbers to pass his key legislation. So that means that you don't have a functioning government. So in order to get any kind of business through, especially the most contentious and key business that pertains to Brexit, he is going to need some new numbers in the House of Commons. So the only option left in order to achieve that would be an election and one where the MPs who are on the ballot paper for Boris Johnson's party support his Brexit position fully. Yeah, and the irony here is there is a Brexit deal. It was Theresa May's Brexit deal and Parliament decided against it. 
Bianca Labino in Westminster. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on because protesters in Hong Kong are vowing to fight on even after one of their key demands was finally met. Chief Executive Carrie Lam said her government is completely withdrawing the controversial extradition bill. Paula Hancock is in Hong Kong with more on this. Paula, have to say it feels a little bit like too little too late here, formally withdrawing the extradition bill, but the protesters have got more demands here and they want them fulfilled, it seems. Well, that's right, Julia. That's the exact quote that we heard from Joshua Wong, the, the pro-democracy activist. Too little, too late. This would have been uh, welcomed three months ago. Now, I also spoke to a pro-democracy lawmaker who said uh, that if Carrie Lam had come out three months ago and said that it had been fully withdrawn, then probably we would not have seen Hong Kong in the state it is now. We would not have seen these people coming out onto the street. Let's listen to what he said. Carrie Lam is three months late. If she had said that the bill would be completely withdrawn three months ago. Things would have been settled. The whole town would not have been turned upside down. It is way too late, way too little for now. I also spoke to a pro-Beijing lawmaker who was actually in the room with Carrie Lam when she uh, told lawmakers that she was deciding to fully withdraw this bill. And he said that just one of the five demands uh, for the protesters is not enough anymore. There has to be at least two of those five demands uh, being accepted, suggesting uh, strongly that what had to happen was this independent investigation of police activity. He also said there had to be an investigation into protester activity as well. But this is uh, really one of the things we're hearing from from activists as well, that, that they have moved on from just the extradition bill and they believe uh, that police have uh, acted with excessive force in recent weeks. The, the, the police say that's simply not true. They have had excessive violence used against them and authorities are supporting that. But there is more of a call for this, uh, this independent investigation. Uh, but certainly what we have seen over recent days and certainly over the weekend, Julia, is that these protesters are becoming more violent, or at least a small element of the hardcore protesters are becoming more violent. And no one is expecting this to make too much difference to that. They are still expecting them to come out onto the streets. Yeah, positions remain entrenched. Paula Hancock, in Hong Kong there. Thank you so much for that. All right. Well, what we did see overnight, stocks in Hong Kong rising almost 4% when rumours began to swirl that that extradition bill would be withdrawn. Now, of course, it has been. It was the best showing for the Hang Seng so far this year. Other Asian markets also closing higher, as you can see, with Chinese stocks rising for the third, third straight session. And that's helping sentiment here in the United States, too. On Wall Street, U.S. futures... Let's take a look at those solidly in the green after a rough start to the trading week yesterday. Both the Dow and the Nasdaq falling more than 1% amid concerns about the fresh round of US-China tariffs and whether or not that then hurts corporate profits and further impacts consumer sentiment here. Remember what we were discussing yesterday with Christina Hooper of Invesco, consumers becoming increasingly worried about the economic outlook. We found out yesterday as well that US factory activity is now contracting too for the first time since early 2016. So recessionary signals from that part of the economy, certainly. Meanwhile, European stocks higher, a relief rally perhaps in the light of that Brexit vote last night. Well, you can take your pick. The uh, British pound bouncing from multi-year lows that were hit in Tuesday's session too, as you can see firmly above that 121 figure, approaching at 122 versus the US dollar.
All right, still to come on First Move. Retribution, the British Prime Minister firing 21 of his own MPs after a crippling Brexit rebellion. We'll talk to one of them. And Walmart steps away from some weapons. The retailer changes its policies after a series of mass shootings in the US, including one at a Walmart store. to the show. The British Prime Minister says the UK needs another election. Well, our next guest agrees that the people of Britain should be allowed another vote, but he says the solution to the Brexit stalemate is not another general election, but another referendum. Joining us now is Femi Olawule. He's co-founder and chief spokesperson of the pro-EU advocacy group Our Future, Our Choice. Femi, great to have you with us. What do you make of the decision yesterday by 21 MPs to abandon the British Prime Minister and try and rule out a no-deal exit here? Well, in terms of them personally, I'd say that thank you, because for once you can see politicians putting the country first above themselves. They're now no longer members of the Conservative Party, thanks to their decision to avoid a no-deal Brexit. Now, there's the argument that people voted for Brexit, so no-deal Brexit is just Brexit. It's not. There is a, it is a massively different sort of Brexit, so the type of Brexit that was promised in 2016, where everybody said we'd have this amazing deal with the EU. Turning us into the only country on planet Earth that doesn't have a single trade deal with anyone within 2,000 miles is not what people voted for. And in fact, in 2017, 54% of voters in the UK voted for parties whose manifestos ruled it out. So it was absolutely right that MPs took a stand against it yesterday. The fact is, though, Femi, 17.4 million people in the UK did vote to leave the EU. How do we honour and respect their wishes here? Well, ultimately, the problem is our, our current relationship with the EU is defined by two international treaties, the treaties of the EU. Now, if you leave the EU, you're going to end up in a new relationship. And we just spent the last three years negotiating a different relationship. And that, that relationship is something that most people who voted for Brexit do not like, which proves that there are versions of the thing that 17 million people voted for, which those 17 million people do not like. Now, if that's the case, and it's shown by all the polling and shown by even people that are protesting here today, the, the only option that we have is a referendum between the deal we've negotiated and membership of the EU. You know, it's interesting. There are a lot of people looking at this saying those people protesting behind you don't give a, a fair reflection. London is a very different feel to what the rest of the UK is saying at this moment. You represent younger people in the UK. Just 64% of 18 to 24 year olds voted in the referendum. If we went back and had a second one, would more young people vote, do you think? We spent the past, uh, well, two, two, two years or so mobilizing young people across the country. They are furious with the mess that's being done to their futures. They did not vote for this. Of the, people that, of the young people that voted, 73% voted to stay in the European Union. This goes against absolutely everything we stand for. It is a very... It was driven by a narrative that was highly xenophobic. Our, our generation is more connected to the outside world than any generation before us. We play FIFA with people in Japan. We tweet at American presidents. We, we work in hotels in France. The idea that we would lock ourselves into the UK goes against everything we stand for. Right now, we have the automatic right, because we're EU citizens, to live, work and love in 31 countries across Europe. 
Now that, for that to go away is exactly the opposite of what young people need. Femi, do you think the EU has been fair in this process, that the Prime Minister called this bill last night a surrender bill, that we've, the UK has given up any leverage they had to get a better deal here? Do you think the EU has been fair? Because there are a lot of Remainers now that are angry with the EU for the treatment over the last three years. Do you think that's a fair assessment too? So the problem is, there's been this narrative that the EU is trying to punish us. And it forgets what the EU actually is. Let's say the EU didn't exist. You'd have 28 different countries making their own regulations for products in their own different ways. Now, anybody that wanted to sell stuff to all those 28 different countries would have to manufacture, market, and package their products in 28 different ways. The benefit of being in the EU is that because we make laws together, it's a lot cheaper for businesses to sell. Now, if you want to get those benefits, you have to abide by the rules. And so the fact that the EU hasn't allowed us to have those benefits without being bound by the rules, which is literally impossible, that's been portrayed as the EU somehow punishing us for our own decision. We are the ones choosing to do this. If we leave without a deal, we force the EU under international law to turn its tariffs against us because that's what World Trade Organization rules say. The narrative that the EU is punishing us is just basically the admission that the Brexit plan has not worked out. This idea that we would um, dominate the negotiations, that we're the fifth biggest economy in the world, that the EU would bow to us and give us everything we need. It is utter rubbish. Ultimately, the situation we're in is of the making of the politicians who put us in this position. I tell you what, you're a great advocate for young people needing to a step up here and vote if they want a say. Femi, fantastic to have you on and we'll get you back soon. Thank you so much. Femi Olawole there. Great to chat to you. All right, we're back after this. Plenty more to come. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Julia Chesley and we are here at the New York Stock Exchange where trading is now open for the second session this week. And as anticipated, we are higher, as you can see, for the U.S. majors following Tuesday's pullback, almost taking back all of yesterday's gains so far. Investors, I think, believing perhaps that the threat of a no-deal Brexit is easing in the UK. It's trying to be removed at least by Parliament. We've got the Hong Kong government formally withdrawing its contested extradition bill. Both developments here could be positive for global stocks and sentiment. The S&P 500 begins today's session around 4% from its record highs for all the volatility. That said, major Wall Street firms are split over where US stocks go from here. JP Morgan Chase is saying now is the time to buy. Deutsche Bank believing Wall Street can rally some 11% here from current levels. On the other hand, Morgan Stanley says they could see another 5% drop in stocks going forward. All depends on your time horizon, I think, here. Let's have a look at some of the individual movers in the session. Shares of Starbucks lower. The company reiterating its earnings guidance for 2019 today. But it did issue a weaker-than-expected outlook for 2020. Right now down some 2.6%. Shares of truck-making firm Navistar are higher right now, up some 6.3%. The company reporting strong Q3 results. It says demand for trucks, buses and auto parts remains robust and that truck deliveries will come in stronger than expected this year. Uber also uh, outperforming in the session so far. Shares of both Uber and Lyft 
falling to record lows, however, in Tuesday's session. Investors are becoming increasingly concerned about their ability to turn a profit at some point in the future. Right now, bouncing a little bit there above $31 a share. Walmart higher by seven-tenths of 1%. The retail giant will stop selling handgun ammunition and short-barrel rifle ammunition at its stores. The announcement comes one month after the mass shooting at a Walmart store in El Paso, Texas, that took the lives of 22 people. Christine Romans joins us on this story. Christine, great to have you with us. Just explain what they won't be selling going forward and what they will be selling forward, because days after that shooting, it feels like this was a very strategic, calculated decision here by Walmart. Talk us through it. Yeah, and there's been a lot of pressure on this company because it occupies a unique position in the gun violence debate, right? It is the scene of a mass shooting. 48 people shot there. Just a couple of days before, there had been a shooting in a different Walmart. It is both the scene, a crime scene for gun violence, and also a large seller of ammunition and firearms. So here's what is changing. The company is going to say no more open carry in its stores. One of the reasons is because after El Paso, believe it or not, there were multiple incidents of people coming into Walmarts, brandishing their weapon to see what would happen, to sort of test their Second Amendment right. And that caused all kinds of frightening and dangerous situations. So no more open carry in stores, even if it is legal. There still is concealed carry with a permit. No more handgun ammunition sales and no more handgun sales in Alaska. That was the last place it was still selling handguns. And so now it's exiting that business overall. These are on top of some prior moves, because, as I said, this company has been under a lot of pressure. It already is out of the AR-15 business. Those are those long guns that sort of broken boys in America seem to prefer when they're going in into these sort of suicide missions inside soft targets. It raised the age limit to 21, and it has a more stringent background check. There's something called a red light background check and a green light background check. And without going into too many of the details, it, it, it has a little bit of a stronger background check. It's also asking the CEO, Doug McMillan, is asking Congress to do more. Uh, He mentioned in in his letter to Congress, he mentioned stronger background checks. He mentions uh, an assault weapons ban. He's saying Congress has to do more. And it mirrors something that I heard from um, the CEO of Goldman Sachs recently, who said, look, CEOs in America are terrified by what they're seeing happening, a country that's tearing itself apart with gun violence. But Congress has to do something and start to set uh, rules of the road. Yeah, and they're echoing the majority of public opinion here that want to see stronger background checks or perhaps that the red flag rules as well applied here. What is this going to cost Walmart? Let's bring it back to the numbers here. Do we have any sense? Because when I listened into their earnings call in the last quarter, they said they're 2% of the firearms market, 20% of market share for ammunition here. Is this going to net cost or net be a gain for them? Because I thought the share price reaction over the last two days was interesting here. I think so, too. I mean, watching the share price has been relatively stable here on this. Look, uh, if you look at Dick's Sporting Goods, for example, you know, one of its guns was used in a mass shooting and and there was some soul searching there and they really toughened up their requirements. Uh, What will it mean for, look, Walmart talks about how it is a deer hunting, a sportsman, uh, a culture that helped build it. I mean, Sam Walton was a a hunter. Years ago, Sam Walton would take his his store managers out on hunting trips. So guns are part of this Walmart uh, culture. They still will sell uh, rifles and deer hunting rifles. They'll still sell accessories. So they're not out of the gun business. They are just limiting some ammunition for some types of guns. And I think that's important to note. 
Yeah, strategic. Christine Romans, thank you so much for joining us on that story. All right, we're going to take a break. But up next, insults flying. The British Prime Minister prepares to fight what he calls the surrender bill. We'll bring you the very latest from Westminster. Stay with us. back to the show. It's just after lunchtime in London, but the Prime Minister has already fought a war of words over Brexit and is readying for more before the day's out. Still to come, a vote on a bill to prevent a no-deal exit from the EU. And if that passes, Boris Johnson has vowed to push for a general election. And if today's PMQs was any indication, it will probably be a pretty ferocious fight. Mr Speaker, I know he's worried about free trade deals with America, but there's only one chlorinated chicken that I can see in this house, and he's on that bench. Will he confirm again? Will he confirm? Will he confirm that he will let the people decide? Let the people decide on what he is doing to this country's negotiating position by having a general election on October the 15th. Jeremy Corbyn! Well, maybe the Prime Minister could tell us what the negotiating position actually is. Our next guest says it doesn't matter what the Prime Minister's negotiating position is because the Prime Minister is, quote, hell-bent on no deal. He said, Basie, one of the Conservative Party rebels fired by Boris Johnson last night. He backed Remain in the referendum but supported Theresa May's Brexit deal. Fantastic to have you on the show, Ed. Thank you so much for joining us. How do you feel today to begin with? Does it feel like a worthy sacrifice? Oh, yes, it definitely feels like a worthy sacrifice. I feel I did the right thing. I've had thousands of emails from my constituents supporting me, so I feel I've represented them. I'm glad to be with the other 20 who have had the whip taken away from them. I couldn't have looked myself in the mirror this morning if I still had the whip, having voted with the government and they had lost it. So I'm glad to be with them. And I think whatever happens with Brexit, I feel I tried to do my bit to stop the catastrophic no-deal Brexit, which no one voted for in the referendum. You said that the Prime Minister is hell-bent on a no-deal option. Isn't there an argument to be made here that given the way that Parliament has intervened, adjusted, voted over the last several months, they ruled out Theresa May's Brexit deal, perhaps this negotiating position was the only way open to the Prime Minister. Agree or disagree? Uh, I agree. I was wrong potentially to say that Boris Johnson was hell-bent on a no-deal Brexit. I think he does want to try and get a deal. But what che- so I was prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt and, in fact, subscribe to the way you've put the strategy to force Parliament, which has failed to back an agreement, to stare into the abyss and say, back this agreement or we go off the cliff. But what changed my mind was, I think, you can't do that on the one hand and then prorogue and suspend Parliament and not allow MPs the chance to uh, debate, have a final say on whether we should go off the cliff in terms of a no deal. Uh, And I also think, as I say, that threatening to suspend or taking away the whip from MPs who disagree with him, I thought was wrong. So that's what made me vote against him last night. It was really because this was the last chance because of the way he had suspended Parliament for MPs to vote on anything that would take no deal off the table. I mean, the Prime Minister said this is a surrender bill. We're basically handing over 
all control here to the EU to decide now what they want to do with us and what terms they set. Would you agree with that too? Disagree. Uh, that's complete nonsense. And to a certain extent, it characterises what is so absolutely awful about this uh, whole Brexit debate. You've got a small cabal of Tory MPs who, because we have a hung parliament, have managed to be the tail that wags the dog. And they've come up with this utterly absurd narrative that the countries with whom we've been partners for the last 45 years, friends and neighbours, are somehow the enemy, are somehow trying to do stuff to us. They're not. They're trying to preserve the European Union and get an exit for Britain, which doesn't damage the British economy unduly and doesn't damage the European Union's economy. But throughout the last two or three years, this terrible kind of absurd language from some sort of second-rate B-movie has been used to attack Europe. Uh, they're not going to try and keep us in the European Union. The idea that if this bill passes, the European Union is going to sit there and hold Britain prisoner is completely and utterly absurd and I wish they would stop it. I wish we could have a grown-up conversation about the best way to leave the European Union. Ed, is it a general election here the next step, the right step, given the chaos that we've seen over the last three years? And do you believe that, that Boris Johnson can win the next election and is he the right person to lead the country after what we've seen over the last few weeks? Agreed three times. So I think we're going to have to have an election. I want to pass this legislation to head off a no-deal Brexit. But then I think Boris Johnson is right to seek an election. Uh, he needs a majority. Uh, if Parliament won't pass a deal, we've got to get back to something that resembles a government. And I think he would uh, thoroughly defeat Jeremy Corbyn. He's a brilliant politician and, uh, frankly, a quantum leap uh, above the previous Prime Minister in terms of his skills in that regard. I don't have any personal problem with Boris Johnson. This is business. He might have punched me slightly harder than I was expecting to be punched for my vote last night, but he's got a job to do and I've known him since I was 18 and I like him and I respect him. So I think he can lead the country and although I don't think we will ever escape the Brexit morass that we have landed ourselves in in my lifetime, there is an argument that once we leave the European Union, some semblance of normal politics might return and actually Boris Johnson is a Cameroon he's absolutely cut from the same cloth as David Cameron he's a centre-right reasonable lib liberal politician when he's not banging on about Brexit. Uh, does Parliament have to wise up here and recognise that perhaps Theresa May's Brexit deal is the only way Brexit gets done the only way to honour the result of the referendum and perhaps the only way to try and unite the country going forward. We've kind of been there and, and people didn't do the okay. parliament, didn't do the will of the people here. Agreed. And I think uh, there are moves today to bring that bill back from the backbenches, from the Labour backbenches, actually. There's a very, very good chance that Labour MPs will back it. But the trouble with MPs is they're human and they have deep personal character flaws, I include myself in that, and there'll be a lot of MPs, frankly, on the Conservative benches, who, if the withdrawal agreement came back, will vote against it again, because they are now, for some completely bizarre reason, hell-bent on a no-deal Brexit. So it's like playing whack-a-mole. Suddenly, we've finally got Labour MPs to wake up, particularly those who represent Leave constituencies, that they can get on with their lives 
if they vote for Brexit because they can say to their constituents they deliver Brexit. And when it comes back, we'll probably get many more Labour votes. At the same time, we'll get a lot of Conservative votes against it, who've now because they've got it into their heads that the only true Brexit is a no-deal Brexit. So it's completely chaotic. Maybe we'll look back and say the reason why uh, Boris was held on to the no-deal exit uh, was to, to basically show that the only deal here was Theresa May's deal. What a crazy period we've been through. Ed, we'll get you back well, to I've... discuss this further. We have to leave it there. Ed Faisy, great care. to have you with us. Thank you so much. All right, coming up on First Move. As Hurricane Dorian moves along the U.S. East Coast, we speak to the Red Cross. They were giving shelter to many of the people forced to leave their homes behind. Stay with us. That's coming up. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to the show. 20 critical patients have been evacuated from the Bahamas' Abaco Islands as rescue operations get underway today. Hurricane Dorian has devastated the islands, killing at least seven people. The number of casualties, though, could rise sharply, according to the Prime Minister. Dorian is now a Category 2 storm and is brushing the U.S. east coast as it makes its way north. Current forecasts show it's staying in the Atlantic, but there are fears it could make landfall in North or South Carolina. Thousands of people on the coast of Florida, Georgia and South Carolina have had to leave their homes. The Red Cross has given shelter to more than 10,000 of them. I'm joined now by Anthony Tonetta from the Red Cross. He comes to us from Orlando, Florida. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I appreciate you're incredibly busy. I want to talk about the Bahamas first and the devastation that we've seen there. Your initial assessment is that 99% of people are going to need assistance. Just talk us through it. Yeah, the visuals that we're seeing coming out of the Bahamas are intense and, and, and very emotional. It's, it's a tough time for the people that live on the islands. Um, the Bahama Red Cross had prepositioned hundreds of, of Red Crossers before the storm. I had a chance to make a landfall, and we also were able to preposition emergency response uh, assets uh, to help with the recovery effort. This is going to be a total uh, cooperation between Red Cross efforts and government officials to make this possible. But the Red Cross is committed to alleviating human suffering, and so we'll be there with the people of the Bahama Islands every step of the way. I mean, some of the estimates I've seen that you've provided, as many as 13,000 homes destroyed. We're talking half of, of all homes on the two islands. I can't even imagine trying to, to tackle that kind of challenge for people at this stage. How do you go about it? Yeah, that assessment is going to be an ongoing process. Um, what I can tell you is that our job is to provide uh, relief for those in need, and we'll do that as we move forward with this process. Um, uh, but, you know, we still have to focus on uh, while that storm has crossed over the Bahamas, we still have three three states here in the United States that are in, in direct uh, impact. And so we need to be prepared for that. And that's what we're doing. Last night, we had about 141 shelters set up. We had more than 9,000 people stay in those shelters. Um, the American Red Cross is, is standing by to assist the people of the Bahamas. But we also are focusing on those that are, are, are in the direct path here in the States as well. I mean, 90 percent of your workforce is, is volunteers. What, what do you need from people at this moment? Because there will be people watching going, I want to help. How do they do that? Yeah, so if you're if you're sitting at home and you're watching this, visit redcross.org. Think about how you can become a, a Red Cross volunteer. Like you said, 90 percent of our workforce are volunteers. They're people that have left their homes and come to the storm impacted area to help. And they've left their friends and family to come back. But the, the unique thing about the Red Cross is that 
whether you're there's a Red Cross, the Bahamas Red Cross, or you're the Florida Red Cross, or wherever you are, we have volunteers that are willing to give generously all the time. And really, it's it's about people helping people, neighbors helping neighbor, and we want to just be there in their darkest days. Anthony, what's your biggest challenge? Is it food? Is it shelter? Is it just basic things like communication at this stage? So it's going to be an evolving process. We're going to continue to see. For some, it may be communications. For some, it may be seeking, still seeking shelter, whether it be in Georgia and South Carolina as that storm as Dorian continues to come through. So it's an evolving process, but we stand ready to, to support those efforts. And, and this is something that we prepare for year-round. And, and like I said, we're ready. We have more than 100, 100 um, uh, tractor trailers full of emergency supplies, and the, and the Red Cross just stands ready to alleviate the human suffering that Hurricane Dorian is causing. Yeah, our thoughts are with you, Anthony. Thank you so much for the work you do. Anthony Tornetta from the Red Cross there. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, as you heard from uh, Anthony there, if you'd like to help the victims of Hurricane Dorian, you can also head to our website. You can find a list of vetted charities and all sorts of ways to contribute. That's at cnn.com slash impact2. So uh, we're there and available and trying to help people. All right. We're just about wrapping up the show here, but you need to stay with CNN because the UK Parliament will begin debating a bill that would look to block a no-deal Brexit, as we've been discussing throughout the show. That debate is just beginning over in the Houses of Parliament there in Westminster. We will be live from the College Green in London after this short break to bring you all the details the moment they happen. Here's a quick look. As we head into break at markets right now, we're higher by almost 1% for the Nasdaq. Can we hold on to those gains? Well, we shall see. Volatility, I think, continues to be the name of the game. Plenty more to come from CNN. But for now, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.